morning, and uh, if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to the book of Habakkuk. We return to our study of Habakkuk after three weeks of absence in 2 Timothy, and this morning we will continue working through this not-so-minor prophet, and uh, God willing, we will see what the Word has for us. Um, I'll remind you, since it's been three weeks, that Habakkuk is three chapters, and in it, the outline's pretty straightforward. Habakkuk begins with a question or complaint to God. Why is the Lord making him look at, see, evil around him in Israel? So much evil that according to verse 4, the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. This is systemic. This is top to bottom. Corruption in the courts, in the priesthood, in the monarchy. Why, why is God not acting? The Lord responds, starting in chapter 1, verse 5. Look, among the nations, see, wonder, I am at work, I have been at work. But you're not going to believe if I told you what I'm about to do. Because God's response to Israel's wickedness and sin is to raise up an even more wicked people, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to come and judge Israel. And we, in our first week, considered that. It's right to grieve about sin and injustice. It is right to cry out to God. And God's solution to evil, God's solution to injustice, may not be what we wanted or hoped for. It may shatter us further. The flow of Habakkuk, and what we're going to look at this morning, is the second exchange. Starting in chapter 1, verse 12, Habakkuk, in light of the first answer, has a new, greater problem. And then, starting in chapter 2, verse 2, the Lord responds. Now, the Lord's response is extensive. We're going to look at his initial response in verses 3 through 5 this morning. Next week, We'll look at the rest of chapter 2, in which the Lord relates a song of mockery, a song of victory over Babylon by the very nations it had swallowed up, with the repeated refrain of woe to him, woe to him. Five woes that the nations would take up in a chant against Babylon in their inevitable downfall and judgment. And then chapter 3 is a closing psalm. This is... Habakkuk's synthesis of the problem. So again, question, why why are you not doing anything about Israel's wickedness? Answer, I am. I'm raising up Babylon. This morning we'll see his next question, the Lord's next answer, and then a psalm synthesizing, worshiping, receiving the Lord's answer. So God willing, we will have three more weeks in Habakkuk. This week, next week, finishing chapter 2, and then I plan to divide chapter 3 in half And I think we'll spend a six weeks total in Habakkuk. And then, God willing, we will begin our study of John's gospel. So with that said, I'd like to begin by reading Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12, through 2, verse 5. We'll have a word of prayer. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12, 2 through 5. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You have made mankind like the fish of the sea 
like crawling things that are, have no ruler. He brings them up with a hook. He drags them out for his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself at the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Lord God, as we consider Habakkuk's vexation, his, his challenge in understanding your purposes, we too confess that at times, Lord, we do not understand why you act as you do. We pray that you would um, give us Habakkuk's faith, give us the faith to hear and receive your answer. Lord, we pray that our faith may not falter, but that we would look to you and trust in you, even in our confusion and our distress. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, our passage we're going to look at in two major points, Habakkuk's second complaint and the Lord's second answer. Habakkuk's second complaint and the Lord's second answer. And it begins point A with confidence in God. Confidence in God. I think this is important. The Bible is filled with examples of people wrestling with God's purposes. And they generally fall along two lines. One that gets rebuke and one that gets gentle answers. The rebuke is when we question what God is doing in such a way as to suggest he is obligated to answer us as if we are putting him on trial. Job eventually gets pressed there by his counselors where he begins to speak about how he wished he could take God to court. He wished he had an attorney. He thinks he has a strong case. And when we question God like that, you know, you know like children do, why? With a clear indication, you need to answer me. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, in effect saying, who do you think you are? This is similar to the response that Paul gives to the man who would ask, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? We must not come to God as if he was accountable to us, as if he must answer us. But there's another way to ask God questions. I think modeled here and in other places in Scripture, much more of the child saying, Father, yes, but why? And I think God gives kind, patient, compassionate answers to people who come like that. 
People who come, you, you're God, you're right, but I don't understand, and it's troubling. And if that's how you're feeling, God, God is kind to this letter. We see the authorization for this letter. And I'll jump a little bit ahead, but if you look at chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, God wanted Habakkuk to write this down to give hope and encouragement. This, this dialogue is meant to strengthen our faith. Write the revelation, the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Energy, strength. So let's learn from how Habakkuk asks his questions. And it begins not with his vexation, but with confidence. When you're struggling with how God fits into the events of your life, when you are struggling with the exercise of his sovereignty, begin with what you know to be true. Back up. It's a way of simplifying a problem. I'm not sure what's going on here, but I do know a few things. And he begins by rehearsing God's character and his everlasting nature. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? And what's he getting at by referring to God as everlasting? Well, I think what he's getting at is God's immutable plans and purpose. God's purpose and plans are eternal. God's purpose and plans are eternal. God's eternality is most commonly connected in the Old Testament, as it comes up that I could find, with his choice of Israel and therefore Israel's security. Listen to Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He thrusts out the enemy before you. Or Psalm 90, Moses' Psalm. O Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever had you formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Whatever's taking place, God's plans are not rashly made. They they go from time before. And so whatever is going on, my God is eternal. My God is holy. Which then leads him to his second confidence, Israel shall not ultimately perish. Now that may seem obvious to us this side of the Babylonian captivity, but for Habakkuk, he had seen, Israel had seen, Judah had seen, Shalmaneser come in, gobble up the ten tribes, and they're gone. And there's some remnants left, the Samaritans. But, but the northern tribes got obliterated. There's no national restitution for them until Christ returns. And so hearing that a nation would gobble up another nation suggests the end of that nation. That's usually what happens when one nation defeats utterly another nation. And yet Habakkuk knows that whatever God is doing with Babylon, it it will not be the end of Israel. I know He's saying, you are eternal, and you've made promises. And I know that whatever you're doing, it is not the destruction of Israel. Listen to uh, Micah 5.2. Here's one reason why it can't be the end of Israel. There are other promises of God that are not fulfilled yet. Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old from ancient days. Or Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. This is another way of saying he's eternal. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Once again, linking God's eternality and unchanging purpose and being with Israel's security. 
So what Habakkuk does know is God is eternal. God is holy. He cites his covenant name. This is the God who's made promises to my people, to me. And I also know that whatever God is doing, it will not be the end of Israel. And he goes on to make his third statement. Babylon, therefore, is ordained as judgment and reproof. He he gets that much. God is holy and eternal. God has made promises to his people. God will not break his word. Whatever God is doing, that's not taking place. Therefore, he says, O rock, O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them as reproof. And this is, again, in keeping with the Davidic covenant. You'll remember the Lord makes a promise to David to build him a house. And David had seen God give his spirit and kingship to Saul. And through a series of two failures, Saul first lost the dynasty, and then he lost the kingship itself, and the Lord took his spirit from him and sent a harmful or evil spirit to torment him. David had seen that, and so when God makes his promises to David, he says this in 2 Samuel 7, 14 to 15, speaking of David's son and descendant, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. So Habakkuk knows this promise. He knows God says, I will discipline a wicked Davidite king. I will not utterly cast them off. And so he starts with confidence in faith. Here's what I know is true. Whatever else is going on, you're good, you're holy, you're timeless and eternal. You have not suddenly changed. Therefore, Israel cannot be destroyed. And I remember you promised David that you would discipline, but not cast off your people. So he starts that. This is beginning with faith. And I think it's a good point for us to follow from that when we're struggling with God's dealings in our lives, with God's dealings in history, begin by going back to what you do know. Or in other words, as you wrestle with the problem, don't let what's going on tempt you into questioning God's holiness, God's eternality, God's promises. That's, that's when the struggle of faith goes bad, when our faith fails, when we begin to consider, might the Lord actually be lying? Might he have changed? Habakkuk won't allow that. Whatever He doesn't know how to resolve this, but he knows those things are true. He starts with what he knows is true. And then he moves to his questioning God. So begins with confidence in God, moves to questioning God, starting in verse 13. He has really two questions that open and end this section, 13 and 17. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So what he's got here is a syllogism. There's a major premise, which is God is too pure to condone or approve of evil. I think that's what's meant by look. In one sense, God sees all. He knows all. So when it talks about God being too pure as to look on evil, it's the notion of looking with favor, looking with toleration, looking with approval, to gaze upon and not be repulsed. God is too pure to look at evil and be pleased by it, to look on it and condone it. That's, that's the idea. A simple verse to back this up, Psalm 5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate 
all evildoers. So that's your major premise. I know, Lord God, you're too holy to look on with approval or toleration or condone evil. Therefore, how can he look on idly and remain silent? Why or how can he then look on idly and remain silent? Why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? What's, what's he getting? What's the nature of his problem? I think here's the idea. He fails to see how, or his problem is this. Lord, as you raise up Babylon, a people that the Lord God admits are wicked. Look at verse 11. This is the Lord's response to the first complaint. They, then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. They're not followers of Yahweh. They're not faithful to him. They're guilty men and they worship idols. Okay. And the Lord's raising them up. Lord, are you in raising them up not approving of, looking at, winking at, tolerating evil? And I know you can't do that. So how then can you raise them up? How can you give them over and give all other peoples over to them? That's, that's the challenge here. How can God operate in history, raising up wicked people for his purposes and not be approving of the evil they're doing? Lord, are you rewarding them? Are you, are you a rewarder of idolaters? Do you give honor and privilege to wicked men? And comparatively, as wicked as Israel is, and you can look at the first complaint in the first four verses, Babylon is more wicked. So in that sense, the, the more righteous is being condemned by the one more wicked than he. That's, that's the problem. How can God do this without looking at, approving of evil? How can you do this, Lord? How can you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? That, those are deep, heavy questions. How can God make use of evil people for his plans? And the Bible is filled with accounts of this. God raising up Pharaoh, God moving the spirit of Cyrus, send the people home. How does God do that? And in, and in doing that, is he approving of, rewarding, being indifferent towards wickedness and evil? That's what's vexing Habakkuk. God is too pure to condone or approve of evil. How then can he look on idly and remain silent? And even in the law of Moses, the notion of silent, maybe even linking to Leviticus 5.1, which is a law that if somebody's aware of a crime or if a trial is taking place and they don't come forward to give testimony, they're guilty of sin. If, if you know a wrongdoing is happening and you don't speak out, you become guilty. Leviticus 5.1, if anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, they call for it, hey, we're trying to resolve this matter, and if you know something about it, come forward and give your evidence. And though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. The, the righteous God declared in his law that if there's a criminal matter being tried and you know pertinent information and you don't come forward, you're guilty of sin. If you remain silent, well, then how can God 
raise up Babylon to do such great evil and not be tolerating, approving, rewarding, being silent. How can he do that, not instantly smash and destroy them and judge them? How does that work? Well, then we see the problem intensifies. The problem intensifies. Verse 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? The first part of this problem is that God has caused Babylon to gather men like fish. To gather men like fish. I don't think he's making a general statement about mankind in verse 14. You have made mankind like the fish of the sea. Rather, I think it's in this particular instance. In fact, in Genesis 1.28, God did not make mankind like the fish of the sea. He made them as vice regents to rule over the fish of the sea. The fish of the sea were to be subject to man. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea. I think Habakkuk's point is this. In raising up Babylon and in giving over these nations to them, have you not, in a sense, made all of us like those fish that just get caught up in nets? We're helpless, we're vulnerable, and powerful Babylon with its great big nets and its sharp hooks are going to gather them all up. And Lord, you, you've set this to happen. God says as much in verse 6. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. You have made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And he brings them all up with his hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. What's the next point? Babylon will joyfully treat them with brutality. We've seen that already. These are a brutal people. These are not restrained, civilized, in our sense, people. The language of dragging people out with dragnets and hooks. He will rejoice and be glad. We've seen that. These are terrible people, a wicked people. And God has set the stage so they're going to sweep by. Human history tells this. They're going to sweep by like fishermen just grabbing up all the fish with their nets and their hooks. Babylon will joyfully treat them with brutality. And finally, what's worse, Babylon will worship its own power and live by its riches. Babylon will worship its own power and live by its riches. Verse 16, therefore he sacrifices to his net. So in this imagery, the net is the tool by which he gathers up the nations. These are the weapons of war. This is Babylon's might. These are the fast horses we saw about in the Lord's last response. Babylon makes sacrifices to its nets. This is another way of saying Babylon ultimately prizes, celebrates, and worships its own strength. Now, it might do that by calling its own strength some god, but the god they worship is the god of Babylon. Babylon's might. We, we, we see this clearly when Nebuchadnezzar walks along the walls. Look at this great city that I have made. These are a people. What they worship is military might and power, and it's theirs. It's theirs. Babylon will worship its power and live by its riches. Now, pick up on that word live. It's significant. Because what we're coming up to is the righteous will live. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. They're going to have leisure. 
wealth, riches, all by their power and their might, which they will worship. Which leads to the second question. Verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Will they continue to gather all nations forever? And here the scope broadens even beyond Israel. But now we're looking at all nations. What the Lord has told Habakkuk is terrible. Israel will be judged by a more wicked people who will treat them harshly, who will rule over them and take their possessions, and displace them from their land, and they will do it to others and others. And so Habakkuk is picturing these wicked people not just stopping with Israel, but with all the nations. Lord, is that what you've decreed? And maybe even by implication, surely if that was what you decreed, then how on earth are you not approving of rewarding, celebrating evil? And that's his question. But it ends with a note of confidence as well. It's like a sandwich of confidence and faith, which again, I think is important to frame this. If we can come to the Lord in faith, humbly, knowing what we know, confessing what we know, backing up whatever's going on, God's holy, God's eternal, we will not die. This is judgment. This is not the end of us. Now that said, I don't begin to see how you can do this, Lord, given how holy you are. I don't understand. And and how long is this going to go on for? Will this be no end? Well, he ends with a note of faith. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watchtower and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. His confidence. Two, Two points here. One, notice that Habakkuk will not trust in his own wisdom. We made this point last week, but you and I are not founts of wisdom. Habakkuk doesn't try to figure this out and come up with, well, if I were God, I would do this, and it seems to me that the right thing, and it must be. No, he needs a word from God. God alone can answer this. And notice he's confident God will answer, and God does have an answer. He doesn't for a second think he's flummoxed God. He doesn't for a second think he's got God on the ropes. Again, this is the humility of a child coming. I know there's a good reason. I know there's a right reason. Please help me understand as opposed to the child that says, why? With a clear implication, I'm right, you're wrong, explain yourself. He's confident the Lord will have an answer and he's willing to wait for it. He's not expecting God to jump to at his timetable. Yes, sir, right away, sir. Rather, I will wait on the answer from the Lord. He will not trust in his own wisdom. He will not lean on his own understanding. He waits for the Lord to answer and correct. Where do I get that from? He assumes that once the Lord has answered him, he's going to set him straight. Look at that, verse 1. Look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk is assuming that when God answers him, Habakkuk's going to have some answering to do. So he believes there is an answer. It's an answer that can only come from God. And that when he hears it, It will set him straight. He's not correcting God. God will be correcting him. That's faith. And if you can come at your struggles of faith, if you can wrestle with your problems with evil and suffering in this world with that type of faith, I hope and trust you'll get the type of answer that Habakkuk gets. The Lord doesn't rebuke him. The Lord deals kindly with him. But he comes first and last with faith. 
I know that whatever else is going on, it's not that God's character's in question. It's not that God's eternality or goodness or holiness or promises are in question. I just don't understand how you, you can do this because I know you don't approve of evil and how long are you going to keep doing this? That's Habakkuk's question and complaint, one that I think we can resonate with and sympathize with. Let's, let's, let's look at the Lord's answer. Let's look at the Lord's answer. Verses 2 through 5. It's really just the first part of God's answer, but I, I think we see enough of it here to get at least some response. First, the Lord's commission. The Lord's commission. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So God wants Habakkuk to write this down that others may read, others like you and me, and that in reading we would get strength, that they might run, presumably with hope. Your blanks here. He commissions the writing to give hope and strength about the future. To give hope and strength about the future. Similar to his commission to Isaiah in chapter 30, verse 8. And now go, write it before you on a tablet, inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. And, secondarily in this commission, to give certainty and patience for its fulfillment. Habakkuk's concern that the current state of affairs predicted by God may last forever. And the Lord wants to make it clear, no. That's the first part of the answer we have. This judgment by Babylon is not the end state of the world. There will be something coming. We don't know what's coming yet, but there will be something coming. And we may be tempted to think it's long, but if we would listen to this word, if Habakkuk would listen to this word, we will wait for it knowing it will not delay. So that's what we see there. It will hasten to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now that's kindness right there. God doesn't owe Habakkuk an explanation. And the Lord not only gives Habakkuk an explanation, at least a partial answer, but by having him write it down, he gives us one as well and other generations and other generations and other generations. And he means for it to give us hope and to give us patience and to strengthen us. He doesn't say, who are you to answer me? Where were you when I created the world? Rather, he, he wants to give Habakkuk and us, by implication, encouragement and hope. Which then gets to point B, the Lord's righteousness. The Lord's righteousness. Verse 4, behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, who is the his? I think it's, it's verse 17, Babylon personified masculinely, he, verse 17, is he then, the Chaldeans, to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? No, the Lord says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. So the first part of the answer we get is this. God is not under any confusion about the wickedness of Babylon. He is not approving of Babylon. He is not honoring and rewarding and, and in some sense, tolerating their sin. Whatever's going on, no, they're wicked, they're proud. 
And then he gives a word to Habakkuk and to us. He does not approve of the proud and the perverse soul. He does not approve of the proud and perverse soul. And let me get this. The righteous shall live by his faith. Now, the rest of the Lord's revelation will be concerning the coming judgment on Babylon. This here is the peace he gives to Habakkuk. This is the peace he gives to those struggling. This is also the verse the Apostle Paul quotes twice, and the author of Hebrews quotes once for the foundation of the gospel, which means this dilemma, this this position that Habakkuk's in, that we, by reading it, can can sympathize with. This, in some senses, is, is the bedrock of what it means to have faith. The Lord says to Habakkuk, no, no, something's coming. It won't delay. Be patient. Read. Take up heart. Don't think I'm taking my time. Yes, Babylon is, is proud. Their soul is perverse. But my righteous one will live by his faith. Will live by his faith. Um, you know this, Romans 1.17, Paul quotes this. I mean, this is the proof text for the gospel of justification by faith alone. Romans 1.17, Paul, for it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by his faith. This is, this is that verse. Habakkuk's not getting a complete answer. The Lord will answer his questions. I'm sure there'll be questions left hanging. And for all of them, what God says to Habakkuk, what God says to his people is this. My righteous ones, trust me, my righteous ones will live by their faith. They're not, they don't live by their good works. They live by their faith, which implies, I believe, that they are righteous. This is Paul's point in Romans. They're righteous through having faith. They humbly trust God's promises. Look to the end of the book. That's where we find Habakkuk. Verse 16, God has said it won't delay, it won't. It will hasten to its appointed time. Verse 16, I hear my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He's done exactly what God said. Write this down, take heart, and wait. It won't delay. What God is saying is even when you don't understand, even when you're confused, trust him and his word and his promises. That's what it means to have faith. In its first context here, what Paul cites, we get justification by faith from this. But turn, turn to Hebrews 10. I think this is significant. Because you could also translate it, the righteous shall live by his faithfulness. In fact, my ESV's got a little footnote to that effect. That's how the author of Hebrews takes it. I think both are true. I think by implication, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I think by implication, clearly, the righteous are those of faith. But how do they live? How do they gain life? They shall live as they act in faithfulness. And that's the currency the author of Hebrews makes. And in some senses, the author of Hebrews' citation of this is closer to the original context of Habakkuk. Let's, let's pick it up in Hebrews 3. I mean, Hebrews 10. Sorry, Hebrews 10 in verse ooh, 35. 
And here's the idea of persevering in faith. He, the author of Hebrews could say the righteous live by continuing in faith, in their faithfulness, in their perseverant faith. For you, 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then he moves into the hall of faith where we see again and again, by faith, Abraham left his land. By faith, he offered up Isaac. By faith, Moses chose his portion of the people of Israel. By faith, Rahab took in the spies. What we see again and again is these peoples lived out faith, their faithfulness. The author of Hebrews is writing to people, thinking of shrinking back. There's persecution. It's falling out of favor. They're thinking of returning back to the temple system. Don't do that. Don't shrink back. Remember, my righteous one shall live by faith. You have need of strength. Persevere. I think that element is here as well. As God is telling Habakkuk, yes, you've stepped up with some faith. You've rehearsed and reminded what you believe and who I am. Keep doing that. The one who continues trusting me, he is the one that will live and persevere and have life. Back to Habakkuk chapter 1. I mean 2, sorry. Back to Habakkuk chapter 2. So this is, this is the nugget of, of instruction and hope, which Habakkuk takes and receives and believes. Understand, and get this, understand, when we talk about justification by faith, Paul takes it to claims of the gospel as he should. But here in its original context, God is calling on Habakkuk to trust him and continue believing him even as terrible things are happening, even as worse things are announced. The Lord says, I, I, I don't approve of evil. I'm aware of their wickedness. I am acting. It may seem slow to you, but it's not. And my righteous ones trust me by faith, and they live by that faith. That, that's what it means to have faith. These are the types of things that test our faith. And God says, my righteous ones will live by faith. They trust God's promises. They live as they act in faithfulness. Point three, Babylon will not live, but will be judged. The righteous living by faith is in contrast to Babylon living by its nets, living by its warfare. And they'll have their day in the sun. They'll, they'll prosper for some time. The scripture makes that clear. They're fleeting pleasures of sin, but make no mistake, they will be judged. And the Lord begins to announce this chorus of judgment on them here. It began really in verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up and is not right within him. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed, the his I think is the same his as verse 4, his soul. is as wide as Sheol, like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations, tying in with verse 17. Will he mercilessly gather all nations forever? Well, he will gather all nations for a time collect as his own peoples, but then look at verse 6, where we'll start next week. Shall not all these, who? Those nations. 
that he's just gathered up. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to So he's predicting, yes, for a time they will gather up all peoples. For a time they'll look like they're successful. But I'm aware of their perversity. Which is to say, he doesn't explain the how. God is able to make use of the Babylonians without approving of their evil. More, more than that, it enables him still to judge them for their evil. He's able to visit judgment upon them, raising up all these nations around them to ridicule them. They'll be cast down. So it's the opposite. No, he's not approving of, winking at, condoning evil. Rather, he will judge it. He will judge it. Now, he doesn't say how he can do that. Habakkuk didn't specifically ask that question. But he does do that. God is able. He, he works in history. He works sovereignly in such a way that his will is done, his purposes are accomplished, and yet Nebuchadnezzar is guilty. Man is guilty. God is still righteously able to judge. God is still righteously able to judge. Babylon will not live but be judged. Why mention wine? It shows up again later here. In this context, I think it's this. The Babylonians, um, like many peoples, are given to drunken feasts. But for someone who's proud, the way alcohol releases what's in your heart, I think here's, what's the pinnacle of when Babylon gives vent to its pride? It's in their drinking parties. Interestingly, if you turn over to Daniel chapter 5, it is exactly in one such drinking party that God's judgment upon them is revealed. They're proud, and their wine makes them boast even more proudly. You remember this. Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. He repents. He writes a confession of faith and trust in God. But his grandson, or his son, depending on how you translate it, King Belshazzar, is not like his father. And he is so wicked and corrupt that he calls for the gold instruments from the temple to be brought out, these holy instruments from the worship of the Lord, and to try to demonstrate how great he is. He was able to take the petty Israelite God and use his holy things as common party cups and plates until a hand began to write on the wall, meanie, meanie, Tequila Farson. I, just, I think it's just delightful. I doubt very much Habakkuk lived long enough to see this. He, he might have if he had an extremely long life and he was extremely young when he wrote this. But we get to see the Lord highlighting the pride, and specifically the pride that their alcohol consumption brings. And it's specifically that context that judgment comes. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered, because he summons someone to tell him what's going on. This terrifies Belshazzar. And Daniel is able to interpret. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your stewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him its interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought 
down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him and he was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with dew of the heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart though you knew all this. When God casts Babylon down, it's precisely this pride that gets singled out. But you lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath whose all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand went. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Meany, Meany, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Meany, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Parez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom for the few more hours that the kingdom would last. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Judgment's coming for Babylon. Judgment perfectly in keeping with God's condemnation of them. God can raise them up for his purposes and righteously judge them. I want to address that last point before we sing our closing song. Um, It's hinted at here. It's not Habakkuk's specific question. If I could reiterate, Habakkuk's specific question is, Lord, are you in doing this, approving of them, rewarding them, tolerating them? How can your eyes that are so pure look on them with apparent favor? Answer, I'm not looking on them with apparent favor. I will judge them. I am not validating them, approving of them, tolerating them. And what may seem like a long time for you, know it will not go on forever. It's coming. The judgment's coming. It's coming swiftly. Be patient. Wait. But that God deals with evil in ways that he doesn't become compromised. I would suggest to you, if that's what you're wrestling with, that glorious truth is at the center of another why question. In Matthew 27... Verse 45, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why, to put it in Habakkuk's term, does the wicked swallow up more run, more righteous than himself. In Habakkuk's case, it's a relative righteousness. The first part of Habakkuk was a confession of how terrible Israel was. Babylon's just a little more terrible. But here on the cross, one who is sinless 
is being mocked at and triumphed over, apparently, by sinful man. The creator is being crucified by his creation. And God, in the same way that he purposed to raise up the Babylons as judgment for Israel, purposed and brought about the crucifixion. At the heart of our gospel message is the truth that God is able to orchestrate such things in a way where he does great good even as the people doing it. The people crucifying Jesus are guilty. So I would, I would urge you to take comfort in that truth as well. We are only able to be saved because at least one other time, God allowed the wicked to swallow up the righteous. And if you wrestle with why and how, hear our Lord's vexed cry as well. He struggled with this question on the cross. Why? Why have you forsaken me? But he remained faithful. God's righteous one lives by his faith. And so God is not calling us as we deal with evil and we try to wrestle these problems to to go anywhere he has not already led us and to struggle with things he has not already struggled with in the incarnation in Jesus Christ. God's never approves evil, even as he may use evil men for his purposes. And he gives us the word, will we trust him? Will we wait patiently for his deliverance? Will we take heart? Where will we grumble and complain? Habakkuk waits. We would do well to wait. Take your prayers to the Lord. Take your questions to the Lord. Do it in the right attitude. Do it humbly. Do it like the child saying, I don't understand, Dad. Why? I believe God is kind and compassionate and patient to such questions. I'm going to call the worship team up as we sing our closing song. Please stand.